Now, if you've got a Bible uh, close to you, you might want to grab it. And uh, if you can open it to the book of Psalms. Guys, um, I'm not going to encourage you to follow me around this morning that is in the text. Because I'm going to jump around. So just, if you can find Psalm 13, that's the first, that's the first of four. So you, you can if you'd like, but I, I'm going to move rather quickly. I'd first like to read to you uh, Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. You ready? How long, O Lord, will, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 25, verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Psalm 44, verse 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures. Forever. Guys, this is the next of the last episode in this series that we've done on spiritual depression, its causes, and its cures. Before I really come to um, what I want to say to you today, I want to read you one more. And you don't, you don't need to turn. This is just two verses on, that come out of the mouth of Moses. This is Numbers chapter 11. Uh, he says, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this... Kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Now, guys, those are four texts. And what I wanted you to see in each of those is that apparently the author of those four texts is in some measure, some degree of of depression. One of them is stated by Moses. One of them, two of them is by, are, are by David. One of them is by the sons of Korah, who were Levites and led in worship. The two that are by David are referred to different periods in his life. So apparently, David experienced more than one occasion where he found himself in depression. Moses wanted to die. And I think you would agree that wanting to die would certainly qualify as depression. And he's not the only one, folks. He's not the only one in the scriptures who prayed to die. Jonah prayed to die. Elijah prayed to die. And, and, and as a result of what you, you've heard in those four texts, I, I think I can at least say this much. That periods of darkness are a normal part of a Christian's experience. That is, 
there are periods of darkness in a Christian's life that are normal Christian experience. Now, guys, that may come as somewhat of a shock to some of you, um, particularly if if your knowledge of Bible content is limited to what you what you learned in vacation Bible school, where they, where they taught us to sing, "I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart." And, and, you know, I'm glad they taught us that song, guys, because there is a great deal of joy in associated with being a Christian. But that joy can be interrupted by a period of darkness. Let me say this a different way. Based on the text that I wrote, that I read you, a normal part of the discipleship process are situations where I am going to be challenged to work through to joy in the face of difficulty. Let me tell you a little story, which I hope will illustrate my point. I hope it will. Years ago, when um, when we were still in Florida, we experienced something that was it was just a it was a dark night of the soul. And a part of that dark night of the soul was uh, just a, one part. There were several parts. But part of it was there was a young man that I had really spent a lot of years with who turned on me. The word, I think, is betrayed me. Now, guys, I'm not even sure I'm right about that. I mean, I may have overreacted. You know, I, I don't know. That's You can determine later. But all I can tell you is I felt betrayed. And in the midst of that betrayal, I had another brother come to me, and I was, you know, pouring out my heart to him. And he said, now, wait a minute, Jimmy. Wait a minute. If I know you, you're somebody that wants to be like Christ. Well, Christ was betrayed. And if you want to be like him, then you're going to experience betrayal too. Now, here's my point. I have read you something from David, from Moses, And from the sons of Korah. And we look at their spiritual lives and we marvel. We uh, we, um, we long to be as spiritual as those guys. Here's what I'm saying. If you want to be as spiritual as those guys, something you better put into the equation is or are periods of darkness. Maybe there's one, maybe there's a half a dozen, I don't know. But it is a normal part, or it is a part, that's better said, it is a part of a normal Christian experience. Okay, Jimmy, if that is so, then do you have any advice for me as I... As I wrestled through to joy in the midst of um, my situation? Well, very frankly, I do. I do have some advice, but I would, I'd like to save it for point three. <clears throat> I'd like just to insert another point in here before we come to that. So bear with me and we'll get to the advice at the end. Here's the second thing that I want to draw your attention or, or the second observation that I want to make this morning. It's this, that... There, there are some people who are more prone to depression than are others. Well, let me give you three examples of people who are more prone 
to, to experience depression than are others. First of all, people who have made it a habit to follow their emotions as opposed to some kind of anchor that is sunk into propositional prescriptional truth. Guys, knowing God and knowing his word helps me sort through some of the turbulence of my own emotional life. But if you are someone who tends to fly by the seat of his pants, you are going to be more prone to experience and taste depression. That's one group. Here's a second group. Particularly vulnerable to depression are people who have to set and keep their own schedules. Um, preachers are an example of people who have to set and keep their own schedules. But, but they're not the best example. The best example is the American housewife. Of somebody who has to set and keep her own schedule. Guys, depression occurs in men. But according to the data, it occurs half as frequently as it does in women. That is, for every one depressed man, there are two depressed women. Um, men, men get depressed over things like um, job loss and business setbacks and health problems. But they are, um, they, they are far less likely to experience that, that vague, generalized, almost unidentifiable, dark, gray fog that seems to envelop women um, for some on a frequent basis. Now, why is that? Why is it that women, especially housewives, are, are more prone to depression? Let me, there's several reasons, but I'd, I'd like to mention five or six. The, the, I guess the chief reason is that, that what they do as a housewife has become a matter of, um, of disrespect and, and downright ridicule. I mean, you, you don't, you don't hear of women being praised because they're on top of their ironing, you know? Um, you know, I, 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 for one, and I, I know I'm not alone. I, I regret the lack of respect and, and status that are given, that is given to the housewife today. You know, maybe we should ditch the term housewife because it's a term that has come to, to symbolize, uh, inferiority or unfulfillment or insignificance. You know, for those women who don't have a career outside their homes. Um, you know, our, much of our self-concept comes from what we think other people think about us. It's called the looking glass self in, in psychological terms. We begin to think of ourselves based on what we think others think of us. And so the housewife begins to pick up vibes about what the, what the culture thinks of her. And the vibe that she so frequently gets is... Um, is often quite derogatory. That's one of the reasons. Here's a second reason. The role of beauty in a highly eroticized culture. 
Gang, you know as well as I do that our culture rewards beauty and it punishes lack of it. I wonder how much money is spent trying to be beautiful. You know, um, you, you remember the book several years ago that John Eldridge wrote called uh, Wild at Heart? Remember that? It was really written for men. But there was one chapter in there about women. And um, the, he talks about uh, men wanting an adventure to uh, to win the beauty. But he talks about women as as longing to be someone, a beauty that longs to be rescued. A beauty that longs to be won. Remember that song that we used to sing? I mean, it's, gosh, I hadn't, I hadn't heard it. In, I guess it was in my youth that we used to sing it about... When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be pretty? Because God forbid if I'm not. If I'm not, then I won't be the object of somebody, some adventurer coming to win me. Here's a third reason. Fatigue and time pressure. That is, these are reasons why women are more prone than men to, de- to de- depression. Fatigue and time pressure. You know, it was Vince Lombardi that said that, that fatigue makes cowards of us all. And there is nobody that runs harder than the, uh, than the mom. We have names for her. We call her Turbo Woman and 24-7 Mom. And, and you know, guys, when, you, when you're tired, you get attacked by things, by issues, thoughts, fears that you thought that you had conquered long ago. Um, and, and then on top of that, every obligation that we shirk is a potential source of guilt And so if I didn't get that done, then I begin to feel worse about myself. And then if you're a woman that works outside your home, there are so many opportunities to feel guilty about your performance. The over-expenditure of physical and nervous capital. Ladies and gentlemen, we overspend at our peril. A fourth reason. Loneliness. Boredom and isolation in our own homes. Gentlemen, you, you may have a wife that is suffering through her own isolation and boredom and, and, and loneliness. What, what produces that? Well, um, I'll tell you one thing that produces it. Kids. When is the last time that you tried to pack up the family and take them to the zoo? I mean, it's exhausting getting two kids in car seats. I mean, what's the use? I mean, it's just such a hassle, I think. I'll just think. Or maybe there's financial limitations. Maybe I can't. Maybe it's because women are so vicious one with the other. You know, several years ago, there was a book that was written. I read it. Um, uh, it might be 20 years old now. It, it, it was worth the price of the title. The title of the book was Bowling Alone. Did you know that the number one American sport is bowling. Did you know that? Or I think it's team sport. Bowling alone. Think of that. That image of bowling alone. You know, in the book, they talked a lot about the uh, that little neighborhood bar in Boston that um, 
became so famous because of the TV show, Cheers. And you remember the song that they used to sing about it? Um, the neighborhood bar where everybody knows your name. Well, there ain't too many neighborhood bars anymore, are there? Where I can go and everybody knows my name. Everybody is, um, is in my extended sphere of influence and, and friendship. Here's another reason, ladies. Intimacy problems in your own marriage or intimacy problems in your marriage. I have no meaningful relationships outside my home and I'm not even close to the man that I love. I, I probably hear that story twice a month. I, I recently was in a conversation with a man who said that he and, when he and his wife fought that they would stop speaking to, see, to each other for periods of months. The only thing that we ever shared was past the salt. I, I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, if you do not address those kinds of things and you let them just simmer, that distance becomes a chasm. And, and it begins to create that dark gray fog that I talked about. Here's another one. Physiological problems, we won't go into those, ladies, so relax. But um, I read this out of a James Dobson book. I had never heard this before. Now, um, you're going to have to check and make sure that he's right, but I can show you the book that I got it at because I looked it back. I, I can't believe this, but he says, James Dobson says that the human female is the only member of the animal kingdom who outlives her reproductive capacity. All others die when their ability to bear young has ended. Did you know that? I didn't know that. But here's my point. Those 40 or so years after the baby-making years, they can be awfully tough, physiologically, on a woman. I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a physician, but it seems to me that the female anatomy is far more complex than the males. And it's just another occasion, another part of the explanation as to why women suffer depression twice as often as men. Here's the last one. Add to all of that um, problems with in-laws, problems with kids, aging, and you put all seven or 15 of those factors together, and you might... You might understand why women are twice as susceptible, the housewife in particular, to depression than are men. I, uh, let me say it again. Men experience depression. Women are not the only ones in this battle. But they are in it twice as frequently as are men. Now, that's the second group that is more prone. Here's the third group. The third group of people who are more prone to depression. Here it is. Christians. I bet you didn't think I was going to say that. Guys, uh, maybe that's a little bit counterintuitive too, but um, I'm convinced that Christians battle with depression more than non-Christians for several reasons. 
Here's one reason. We are people who think, oh my, because I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to be struggling with that. I mean, what's, what's wrong with me? And then, Satan doesn't create the circumstances that we're in. He just takes advantage of us while we're in them. He's the one that begins to whisper at night. <laughs> You're really no different. He, he doesn't orchestrate the circumstances. He just gets involved to, to make it worse. Because I'm already thinking, I'm deficient. I'm some kind of substandard believer. Here's the second reason. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about this a little bit next week, which is the last of the episode in this series. But I think so many of us have developed a fear-based view of Christian living. That is, we're always wondering whether we're about to get punished for something. Is, is my sin a part of my situation? Yes, of course it is. It's always going to be a part of your situation this side of heaven. But ladies and gentlemen, the Bible tells us how we deal with our sin. Guys, little little historical uh, note for you. <clears throat> Do you know what the 95 theses are? Do you know that the Protestant Reformation was launched by Martin Luther when he nailed 95 theses on the church door um, at Wittenberg, Germany? Do you realize that Martin Luther never wanted to leave the Roman Catholic Church? He was just challenging the Roman Catholic Church to debate, challenging her to a, a discussion. Do you know what the first of the 95 theses was? Number one. Martin Luther said, number one, that the life of the Christian is to be a life of repentance. Did you know that? Now, why would he say something like that? Because he understood the pervasiveness of sin in us. Guys, the Bible gives instructions how we deal with our sin. It's, it's the very nature of the spiritual battle that we're in. Everything is going on on the inside. The old man that remains in the Christian is still trying to get its place of dominance back that it had prior to our being born of the Spirit. So this struggle, by the way, this struggle is not going on in the non-Christian, ladies and gentlemen. It's just going on in us. The, the, the Christian life begins with a new birth. And that birth is followed by growth. And that growth is achieved via struggle. Part of the struggle, I'm afraid, is that we go through these periods where Satan gets involved and just eats our lunch. He didn't create it. He just takes advantage of us. So those are some folks that are more prone. So if you're a Christian, and if you're a Christian woman, and if you're a Christian woman who tends to follow her emotions... You are set up. Now, I've got some advice. <laughs> um, I've got three pieces of advice for you. 
Um, and each of them has multiple parts to it. So, but before I get to those, let, let me say this real quickly, guys. These, the Christians want formulas. They want things that they can say step one, step two, step three, and voila, it's over. It doesn't work like that, guys. Nothing is automatic. Um, so it's, it's not, it, it, it doesn't happen once the steps are observed. So don't get your hopes up. Um, it is, it's a fight. There's, there's no secret formulas that I can give you. And, and I think one of the mistakes that we make is, is that we think if I pray more, if I study my Bible more, if I do more church work, all is going to be well. Now, folks, I'm not against any of those things. I hope you do all those things, you know, pray more, study more. But guys, what, you know what you're doing, don't you? You're trying to use these things to twist God's arm to get you out of your current funk. I, I read an article this week in the New Yorker magazine. And the, the author of the article was a woman, and I'm sure she had to be, she had to be teasing. She had to be jesting. But she was talking about a cure for a hangover, a weekly hangover. Now, <laughs> I hope that's not a problem with you, but should it be? Um, she's got, she, this sentence is in this article. She says, um, in order to cure your hangover, you must attend church as quickly as possible. I don't know how that helps a hangover. I, I, I've never had a hangover. Um, my wife's had several, but not me. Uh, <laughs> just a joke. Um, um, but guys, do you see the mentality? And that's what we have as Christians. We, we think, okay, let's step one, step two, step three, and it doesn't work like that. Okay? So keep that in mind. I'm about to give you a couple of those formulas and, and I, and I don't want to mislead you by thinking, oh, if I do those three things, then everything's going to be fine. Okay, here's, here's opinion number one. It comes from Archibald Hart. If you know the name, he's a, he's a psychiatrist. He's, uh, in his book, Anxiety Cured. When I started this series, I showed you his book. It comes right out of that book. Um, he is a frequent guest of James Dobson, Focus on the Family. Um, when I first heard him, I, I thought, I better get that book. Um, but here's what James, here's what Archibald, Dr. Archibald Hart says is the solution or advice for those depressed. Three steps. Are you ready? Medication. Meditation. And change. Did you hear that? I said medication. And then meditation. And then change. I bet you thought I wouldn't say that. Now, guys, let me say real quickly, medication is not the solution. However, medication can be very helpful. Medication can be used to buy you some time. It can be a temporary bridge to help you get to the place where you're sorting some things out. I have no offense. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, I draw that out of something that Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. Now, what was he telling Timothy? He was saying to Timothy that um, uh, 
there is a certain medicinal value to wine. Now, I don't know what kind of stomach problems Timothy had, but Paul was saying, avail yourself of the medicines that are available to you. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, avail yourself of the medications that are available to you. They are not the solution, but they can help temporarily. Medication, meditation. And that's where the solution is going to be found, ladies and gentlemen. You've got to find God in all this. What does he say? Um, What does he tell me to do? Um, What is his perspective on my life situation? You're going to have to deal with God. Medication might buy you some time. But ultimately, your solution is going to be found in meditation. Finding God, knowing God. And then the third thing he says is change. I'll tell you this. Gosh, um, 19 years ago, I I told you this on the the first sermon in this series. I told you that I went through a, a, a period after we, after the look campaign. If you're new to Grace of Band, you don't know what the look campaign was. It was, it was the worst time in my life. But the Look campaign was the campaign that we launched to raise the money to build this building. We have six buildings here at Grace the Van, and we've only raised money one time. The other five have been built with overage, okay? But this one, we had to go out and borrow. We had to raise money for it. And I was the point man. I was the cheerleader, at least. I guess others were the point man. I was just the cheerleader. After the money was raised, I'm telling you, I sunk into something but I, that I don't know what it was. I can only call it depression. I don't know what it was. But I, during that period, the elders saw it. The elders saw me in trouble. And they came to me and they said, we want you out of this church. We want your office in your home. I have an office in my home and I work out of my office every morning. I usually come in sometime after lunch. Uh, that was not my idea. That was the session's idea. But I can tell you this. Susie and I both think it's added years to my life. It was the needed change. Medication, meditation, and change. Now that's from Archibald Hart. Here's the next one. Here's the, here's the second opinion. And I, <laughs> I'm somewhat embarrassed about this because I, I want to tell you that it's from John MacArthur, but I'm not sure. I, I look back at my file this week and I tried to find out where I got this. And I'm pretty sure it came from John MacArthur. It's either John MacArthur or Jay Adams. And, but I think it's John MacArthur. And when you hear it, if you know anything about John MacArthur, it sounds like John MacArthur. Here's what he says in terms of getting yourself out of your own funk. He's got three steps too. He says this. Intelligent repentance, living faith, and tangible obedience. You know, very, very, very frankly, they're very much alike. I'll show you that in a minute. But in... Intelligent repentance, living faith, and tangible obedience. First of all, intangible or intelligent repentance. Let's say, ladies and gentlemen, that you're in your situation because of sin. Let's say you've had an affair. I'm sorry you've done that. It's not a small thing. It's a huge thing. It's a big thing. But there is life after an affair. Because God gives instructions as to how sin might be dealt with. 
It's called repentance, ladies and gentlemen. If you need some instruction, go to Psalm 51 and read David's Psalm of Repentance. I've got a series on Psalm 51 that I did last December. Get it. It might even help you. But it's intelligent repentance. It doesn't mean that I'm, uh, uh, miss out on the consequences, but there is a, there is a coming back to God because my sin has broken our relationship. It's intelligent repentance. And then living faith. I've got to reconnect with God somehow. And I've got to find Him in the midst of all this. That's the same thing as meditation. Actually, I would think that MacArthur's step one and step two are Archibald Hart's step two. Meditation, intelligent repentance, and living faith. And then tangible obedience or change. Some things need to change, folks. Maybe it's a whole lot more fundamental than moving your office out of the church into your home. Maybe it's much bigger, much, much more adjustment need to be made. I don't know. But true repentance always ends up in tangible obedience. That's MacArthur's. And here's mine. The third opinion. Here's my best offering, ladies and gentlemen. It's a poem. A poem? You're going to give us a poem? Yeah, I am. But before I get to the poem, let me say this. Last week, you may recall that we were in Hebrews chapter 12, and I was talking about a right way and a wrong way to respond to my, my situation. And I drew this right out of Hebrews 12:5, where he says, Do not grow weary. And one of the wrong responses I said then is for you to throw in the towel, to quit, to give up, to resign myself to my situation, and just grow bitter. Those are all wrong responses. Um, So we're instructed to not do that. So in light of that, here's my advice. Do the next right thing and do it long enough. Do you remember the story in Genesis 4 about Cain and Abel? Remember that? You know, Cain killed Abel ultimately, but uh, it starts with Cain and Abel both bringing offerings to God. Remember that? Cain and Abel both, uh, Cain brought vegetables and, and Abel brought meat. And God looked with favor on Abel's, but he rejected Cain's. So Cain is really upset, and he's sulking and pouting around and, and, and all funky and um, snarky. That's a good word. He's all snarky. So God comes to him in Genesis 4, and he says, Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Tell me, Cain, why are you depressed? Why is your countenance fallen? Remember what he says next? God says to Cain, If you do right, will not your countenance be lifted? That's my advice, ladies and gentlemen. Do the next right thing. And do it long enough. So in response to that, I want you to hear this poem. 
It's not really one of those poems that rhymes. It's really kind of a funny poem, but in my opinion, it's profound. It's called The Road of Life. At first, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there sort of like a president. I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I really didn't know him. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike. And I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change his places. But life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead... He knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal. I worried and was anxious and asked, where are you taking me? He laughed and, and didn't answer. And I, I started to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed. Gifts of healing, acceptance, and joy. They gave me gifts to take on my journey, my Lord's and mine. And we were off again. And he said, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did to the people we met. And I found that in giving, I received, and still our burden was light. I did not trust him. At first, in control of my life, I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. Knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners. Knows how to jump to clear high rocks. Knows how to fly to shorten scary passages. I am learning to shut up. And pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do any more, he just smiles and says, pedal. Just do the next right thing and do it long enough. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and don't know this Christ, we would love to introduce you to the one who knows bike secrets. Our Father, I do pray that you will help your people cope with whatever it is that they face and that you would do it in such a way that you would get glory and that we would be humbled and that we would be made more into the image of Jesus Christ.
Lord, if you brought people here today who have not yet met this Savior of ours, the one who has made life full of exhilaration, I pray that something might have occurred maybe right now that would cause them to see their sin and their need for a Savior, the one who we count to be altogether lovely. Now, Father, um, take us wherever you want, and we will, by your kindness and grace, pedal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.